If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, it's going to be difficult for me to tell you where we're going to be this morning because we're going to be in three uh, specific passages um, because this morning is kind of serving as a, uh, a respite stop, if you will. If you've ever been on a long trip, uh, a car ride, if you will, there's usually one thing that they all have in common. You got a break uh, somewhere, unless you're a crazy college kid who wants to pull an all-nighter across country. But uh, this morning is operating as that. This is week four of a series that we've titled Into the Quiet, which is really a biblical word study of the uh, original word, eremos, which means we've talked about it every week, the quiet place, the wilderness, the desolate places, and lonely places. And uh, what we're doing this morning is uh, structuring this stop to take a big picture look at um, the spiritual conflict, if you will, of a time in the wilderness. So there's three places. If you have a physical copy of God's word or just wanna know where we're gonna be heading, we're gonna be in Genesis 3, Mark 1 and Matthew 4, the same scene there, and Revelation chapter 12. So we're just anchoring these as three points uh, along this path this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I love routine. I love my habits. I'm a type A person. I know all of us, we uh, live and die by our patterns and our habits, but for some of us, we're wired even more intentionally to crave routine and habit. Like I even love my bad habits uh, that uh, my wife is trying to intentionally get me to break, but it's a struggle for me to, to break even the bad habits that I know that I need to get out of, but I just somehow just continually uh, do the same thing over and over again. And for me as a type A person who loves routine, who loves productivity, who loves to make a good to that task list and a to-do list, uh, it's, it's difficult for me and it's not natural for the first thing in the morning when I wake up, as much as you would like to believe or not, to just run to this quiet place that we've been talking about. This series is not a sage on the stage talking to others who need to follow the path, but rather a learner with other learners seeking to have intimacy with God seeking to get out of our bad habits of jumping into our day with email, task list, the next thing to check off, but rather beginning a time in the quiet spaces to pursue intimacy with the Father. For every time we failed to realize and recognize that we are invited more times than we failed for again to try intimacy and pursue to know him more closely. Where we've been thus far in this series is we started in week one, four weeks ago, thinking about the end in mind. It's always a good thing to do if you're going on any long trip is thinking about where you're headed. And we started with, in Matthew 3, John the baptizer, who seems to be this fully formed individual who knows who he is, know what his, he knows what his purpose is, he knows what he's called to do because of his time in the quiet with God. And then in week two, we looked at Jesus and how he structured his life of needing some, for us, the application is for needing some subtraction so that we can have time with the Father, not necessarily thinking about it in just addition terms of like, oh yeah, I need to squeeze that into my schedule. But rather, what are some things that we need to subtract in order to have this time with God alone? And then last week, we looked at Jesus going into the place of pain with his father in full transparency and honesty, going in honest before his father with where he was at. And that's how we're called to enter into the space because it is the birthplace for transformation in our lives. That if we're able to go into this place, honest before God, he can really begin to do some magnificent work. And so this week, as a respite stop on our journey of into the quiet, 
we want to slowly walk through this idea of processing where we've been thus far and the cosmic outcomes and battleground that is at play with our time pursuing the Father in the quiet place. And so what you're going to see here is if you have a journey group guide or if you want a teaching resource, you can jump on jcsignup.com and go to the bottom there and there says um, into the quiet guides. You can find it there or under our resources section of our website. But you can see that I've deemed what I'm calling the three counterfeit voices. But I've also on the screen, if you're taking notes, uh, use the more biblical terms for them as well. And so in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, you see what's at play is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, or I'll call them the culture's voice, your voice, and the enemy's voice. We're gonna spend a, a brief moment here defining each one of these terms, but really each one of these could be their own teaching in and of itself. Because the world as it's defined in a negative sense is the culture that's in influenced by sin. It's the environment that we find ourselves in that is at play in who we are and who we are becoming as individuals. And then the flesh or your voice, your flesh, is you and your disordered desires, my disordered desires. We talked about a little bit last week that as a follower of Jesus who wants to honor God, we, we want to do what God says, but we also want to sin. It's thinking of Paul's language in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And so it's this, it's this battle in our desires. And then the devil is the origin of sin, right? He is the original sinner who uh, we will unpack a lot in each one of these passages. But for just a context here, look at with me in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, just really quickly. It says, John writes to his listeners, it says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see in verse 16 are the three tactics of the enemy. This is what's in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The three primary tactics of the enemy and the three things that he attacks with in Genesis 3, Jesus in Matthew 4 or Mark 1, and he ultimately attacks in our lives. And we'll spend the rest of this series slowly walking through Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and we'll nuance each one of these tactics, get their own week of how they play out in our lives and how running to Jesus as the redeemer and hero is the only solution we could have. And so in this, what you're gonna see today is that how the devil or Satan uses the same tactics all throughout scripture and ultimately in your life. So the first place I wanna go to is the end, that first passage I mentioned, Revelation 12. Now I couldn't include this on the screens or the notes, but I love this passage too much not to point this out. That in Revelation 12, one through six, there are multiple signs that are mentioned. But what I want to just draw your attention to if you wanna spend some time in the quiet this week in Revelation 12, is that there are these signs. There's a great dragon, there's a pregnant woman, there's a uh, child that's birthed. There's all these different signs that are pointed out in Revelation 12. But what is really interesting is in Revelation 12, six, that the woman who is representation of the people of God throughout history is uh, driven into the wilderness because she's running for her life from this great dragon who is depicted as the devil. And she's nourished by God in this place. That word wilderness is that word that we've been studying, aremos, that God's people all throughout history, the wilderness, as it may be depicted as this place where God's people 
are pushed there by him, by the enemy, and by themselves, oftentimes is always the place where God nourishes his people. Think about an exodus. The people of God are wandering around in the Aramos, but constantly they are nourished by God and kept together by his hand alone. Jesus runs to the Aramos led by the Spirit of God to defeat the enemy, but he is constantly sustained by God himself. It is the place for his provision, his soul nourishment. It is the place that God's people have been protected all throughout history. It is the place where our soul is nourished as well. So that's the side note. That was free of charge, but let's dive into the actual passage. Revelation 12, 9. And a great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he has been thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have been conquered. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not even their own lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. What I wanna point out in this passage and how it is a cosmic play of what has been throughout all of history as Satan's primary attack method in our lives. Notice he is called in verse, uh, I believe, 10 as the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He is one who uses accusation. But this passage and its point is not that Satan's role, which has been the same role all throughout history. You could read the book of Job, the book of Zechariah, and other books to see Satan's role as an accuser, as a blame caster, as a liar. Jesus in John 8 says when he lies, he speaks his native language. It's common from his lips that he is a liar and has been a liar from the very beginning. But the point of this passage is, is that Satan has been thrown down or cast out, or that word literally means bounced. He's been bounced out of heaven. I like that one the best. So I'll probably just use that from now on. He's been bounced out of heaven. And the point of this literally is that not only has he been locked out of heaven, but every accusation from now forward in the life of a believer or a follower of Jesus has no merit and no basis. But it doesn't mean he doesn't try. And the way that a follower of Jesus conquers the evil one or the voice of the enemy in their life is by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, by trusting in Jesus and by not running to him one time, but constantly trusting in him. Here's what you have to understand and the point of just referencing this passage in general. Oftentimes in church, we're very comfortable talking about God, about Jesus, about the angels, about all the good guys and all the, uh, the ways in which that we are called to pursue him. But in the word of God and from the perspective of Jesus himself, just as much as God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit are alive and well, so is the evil one. He says he's been cast out of heaven because his placement is currently on this world and he is alive and active. He's active in our world, he's active in our culture, and he's even active in your life. Notice that the devil, according to Jesus in John 10.10, 10, has no greater desire than to kill, steal, and destroy 
But his method or his war tactic of destruction in Revelation 12 wasn't by a sword. Notice his tactic was accusation and lies. In your life and my life, the way the devil wants to lead us to death is by cutting us off from the life source. Jesus says in that same passage in John 10, 10, that the fo- he comes to give life and life to the full, that life in the life of a Jesus follower is in connectivity and relationship and intimacy with God. And if the devil wants to get in your life and in my life, well, how is he going to suck the life out of us, if you will? By severing that attachment, but he can't literally break that bond because he has no merit or has any basis for any accusation that he puts in front of God. So what will he attempt to do to try to lead us down the path of death? He'll try to distance us from intimacy. One French poet quoted this statement in our culture and the world. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever tried to pull was convincing the world he didn't exist that the level of influence that he could provide death in our life and in your life is by trying to convince you that intimacy with God is just something for heaven. The intimacy with God in your life and in my life is something that might happen one day when you get there. But the two primary and probably most common ways that the devil will work in your life is trying to convince you that you don't know how to pray and you cannot understand God's word. His, de- his desire of death in your life in accusation and lie and trickery in ideas, don't miss that. It's simply in ideas. Is that that's too hard, leave that per- for the professionals. You don't need to pray, your pastors do that. You don't need to study God's word for yourself, just come on Sunday for that. When in all reality, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians that the way that the Spirit is not going to stop working in their midst, this is chapter five, I'm just referencing it here, is when they get into God's word and they, his word is test what is taught. They test the word of God and that they rely on the Spirit of God working through the word of God to be active in their own lives on a regular basis. That's how the Spirit is not his word stifled. That when God's people get in God's word for themselves, when they come together, the spirit works amongst them. But what's really helpful for us to understand is this not, is not just a revelation, apocalyptic, you know, the weird book in the Bible thing. This has been all throughout. Let's go to the very beginning, Genesis 3. Some context will be helpful here. Genesis 2, 1 and 2, God made everything. It was good. And then humans messed up. This is Genesis 3. We don't know the timeline between Genesis 1 and 2 to 3, we just know it happened next because it's on the next page. It it could have been a moment. It could have been a day. It could have been an hour. It could have been a couple of years. We just know it happened next. So let's look at this text together. Genesis 3, I'm going to read 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, here's the present, evil voice. I'll point out all three voices in this passage. You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. It's her voice. You notice her, her desires are beginning to become disordered in this. She's listening to the lie or the temptation of the enemy and being enticed and her her voice is taking over here. And then the end of verse six. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now notice her environment, who's present with her, the, or you could say the culture that's present with her. She's in the midst of the Garden of Eden, which is also known as paradise. And she still falls prey to temptation along with the man. The, the man and woman, the first humans fall to temptation in the presence of paradise. How do we think we're any better than any of these two? Verse seven, then their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. This is known as what is the story of the first sin in the Bible. And the Bible defines sin for itself in a variety of ways, missing the mark, leaving the path. It's any time we fall short of God's standard for living. Uh, but here is a, not a new definition, but more words to one of those phrases that helps us round out what sin is. Sin is any time humans define what is good for themselves or others apart from God. Let me say that again, that sin is any time humans define what is good for themselves or others apart from God. And you see that happening there. They're defining for themselves what is to be good. But what I want you to notice is in those three voices, the tactic of the cosmic liar or the devil. The tactic is twofold in this one passage. He uses all three temptations that you, we read earlier in 1 John 2.16, which we'll walk through those slowly in the weeks to come. But notice that his tactics as a whole is to do two things. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's not on the screen, but it's to distance and distort. To distance and distort. If you have a copy of God's word, just gaze your eyes there in Genesis 3.1. Notice there what is opening from the narrator is, it says, now the serpent was more craftier than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh Elohim. That man and woman are not made by this distant deity off in outer space who spun the top of the world and left it hands off, but rather they're made by a personal, intimate God who knows them by name and face. That he didn't just make them like he did all other creation, but he crafted them. He formed them like a potter with his clay. That he breathed life into their nostrils, the scripture says, that he intimately and personally knows them knows them by name. He is not just random God off in the distance, but he is Yahweh Elohim. He is personal name of God. This is who he is. This is what he's like. And they know him. But the first thing out of the crafty serpent's mouth is to distance the name of God and to simplify it to the generic name in the Hebrew scriptures, just El. Continue in the very same verse. He says, and he, that's the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God? This is now 
in the Hebrew scriptures used as one of the names for God. It's just El. It's the generic term for a deity. But it distances them from the personal name of God. Notice that the words in the Bible are not put there by accident, that they are intentionally placed. And what circles all the way back around in this narrative is by the time you get back to 8, verse 8, who is walking in the garden amongst them? Not El, but simply they hear the sound of the Lord God. It's back to the personal name of God once again. The serpent, his tactic is to distance them from who God is in his personhood and to create this space of intimacy between them and their God. And then he distorts, he twists the word of God, which he does all throughout scripture. You see, the devil desires to distance and distort us from who God is and what he's like. And this narrative, just quickly teaching through it, is this, is that you see that there's three counterclaims that tempts the first humans. It's to establish their own autonomy and their independence away from God, to drive a wedge between intimacy, if you will. The three things that are told them that you will not die, your eyes will be open, you will be like God. Three claims that will distance them from the reliability and trustworthiness of who God is and what he says. But here's what actually happens. In, in one sense, Adam and Eve do become like God because they get to make a God decision. They get to define what is right and wrong. But scripture calls that sin, that God has already done that task. He is God, we are not. He defines right and wrong, we do not. In all reality though, they were already like God. They were the only things created made in his image, in his likeness, and they distorted that. The second thing is their eyes were open, but it was not in a good way. Because what enter into the world in this one simple act of rebelling against God is guilt, shame. Enter the picture. Third thing that happens is that Adam and Eve do not immediately die. But in a very real spiritual sense, they are cut off from the intimacy of God's presence. Because when they hear him, they hide. But the Lord God comes to them again, verse 9. And the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? You see, God didn't need new information. He knew what had already happened, but he is providing an opportunity for Adam and Eve to come out in the open and repent. This is evidence for God's grace in their life and in ours. And the same question could be called out for each one of us today. Where are you? in relationship to your intimacy with God and your relationship with God, where are you? Have you feeling like you have failed 99 times to try to learn how to pray and learn how to spend time in the quiet with God? Notice that our God is a, give you a hundred chance. That 99 attempts with failure at the end of each one of them is a hundred opportunities to enter into intimacy with who God is. Where are you hear the sound of our God's voice walking in the cool of the day, calling out to you saying, come back again. Now fast forward through all this Old Testament history and get to Matthew three, where Jesus is baptized and declared by the father, beloved son. Verse one of chapter four goes like this. And then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I simply want you to notice in this point, God led this thing. It wasn't an accident that the devil was in the space 
where God, where God and the Father and Jesus have intimacy. That the Father led the Spirit to lead Jesus into the wilderness in order for the purpose of to be tempted by the devil. It was not an accident like, what are you doing here? It wasn't like you rounded the corner into a room of your house and there's somebody random standing there. It's like, what are you doing? No, no, if they, were post, they were supposed to be there. God led this thing. And over 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is with his father praying and fasting. And, and Kevin, we'll talk about that this next week about the intentional time of how do we pray and, and, and create spaces in our life for intimacy with God. But what I simply want you to notice here is that as we read Matthew's gospel, I found this fascinating as I compare Mark and Matthew in these two stories that in Matthew's gospel, it almost is the way that I picture it in my mind, that there's 40 days and 40 nights of Jesus alone with his father in the wilderness. He's praying, he's fasting, he's in the spiritual high, he's alone with the father. And then at the end of it, like at you know, the 23rd hour of the 39th day or whatever, here comes Satan, like ready to pounce. But when you read Mark's account, it's almost as if all of these things are happening in unison and it's 40 days of this going back and forth like Jesus is almost battling the devil as he's praying and fasting. I don't know, we'll read it together again, uh, but Hannah Best already read it once, but here's Mark 1, 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending like a dove on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At this point, I just wanna point out in Jesus' story, in Jesus' life, he has done nothing spectacular. No miracles recorded, no teachings written down, no healings, but he's still beloved. Why is this important for us to recognize? Because the motivation for us to spend time with God in the quiet this place of communion is not out of desire to earn love from him, but rather to experience the love he already has placed on us because of the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing to earn, nothing to get credit for. Honestly, in some regard, nothing to accomplish, just beloved. It's who you are in Christ Jesus and how God sees you and being with him in this space is learning to understand that more fully. Let's continue on. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Simply see that this place, the Aramos, the wilderness is where Mark desires his readers to hear not only this language of this is what Jesus did, but also the language of Genesis, that he's with the wild animals, that Satan is tempting him and he's out in the quiet place. Just like the first humans, with the animals, with God, with the devil. Jesus being put to the test like the first humans, which the word literally means to be tempted is to entice a behavior. You see here that this comparison of Jesus as the other scriptures call him the new Adam as the victor in this situation, unlike the first humans were. I'm going to throw up a, a chart on the screen behind me and this just comparison and contrast of 
the scene in Genesis 3 and the scene of Jesus in the wilderness and what they have in common and what they have unlike each other. I'm gonna go through this as you kind of digest this behind you. Both temptations start with food, which we didn't cover today, but we will in a couple of weeks with the temptation of Jesus to turn stones into bread. But the temptations are in different settings. Adam and Eve are tempted by fruit, Jesus tempted by bread, but they both start with food. You see, the settings are in Genesis 3, there's a garden with plenty. The Lord God tells them in Genesis chapter 2, take and eat from any tree except one. Here, Jesus is in the scarcity of a wilderness. Both these scenes concern the truth and goodness of the word of God to trust it and it alone. In Genesis, the humans define what God said and they try to redefine it and they fall into temptation. Jesus, rather, he affirms the sufficiency of what God has said and stands on it alone. Both the scenes reveal the identity of those who are being tempted. The humans are intimately known by God in a personal, loving way as his children, him as their father, yet they doubt his character as a loving father. Jesus will affirm that he trusts his father and he proves himself to be God's faithful and obedient son. Both of these scenes, they set this pattern for what it means to live and be a human. The humans in Genesis 3 set this pattern for you do you. You know what's best. Define it for yourself. Or what people in culture will call expressive individualism. That we know what's best for us, but this is ultimately the path that leads to death. Jesus, on the other hand, will set a course for a new humanity leading to life with intimacy with the Father. Where Adam was succumbed by his first tempter, resulting in hostility between creation and humans in relationship for all time, Jesus is the better Adam. He overcomes the tempter. He restores relationship with the Father and ultimately one day with creation and with every other relationship. He lives by the sustenance of God's word as a sign that new creation is possible and it is coming. And our life is learning to submit to him and walk with him and trust him in all things. You see, Jesus is tempted by Satan to distance himself from the Father, and he distorts the Word of God. Adam and Eve are distanced and distort the Word of God. Satan did it with Jesus. He did it with the first humans, and he's doing it with you and I, whether we realize it or not. The question for us, though, is will will we be able to spot it in our lives? Will we be able to spot the disordered desires in our own heart that are manipulated by the forces that we can't even put our eyes on? Will we be able to spot when culture is leading us away from God's path, down a path of define it for yourself, which is the Bible's definition for sin? Will we be able to spot when there's something bigger going on than just our habits and our routines when Satan himself is attacking? That's kind of an uncomfortable thing to even put out in the open, right? But in a a real sense, in a much more simple sense, I experienced this a couple of years ago. 
and it was at the mailbox this time. I went to the mail a couple of years ago and after a work day and Rena, my wife and I, we, we got in a car. We just had two kids at the time. We had some errands to run that afternoon. And I hand her the mail. We pull out of the driveway. We head to do our task list and she begins to open the mail. And one of the pieces of the mail that she opens is a check for several thousands of dollars with our names on it. And it's like, Eureka, like we hit it. Like we did it. Like, this is amazing. Like young family, two kids in ministry, one income, a couple thousand dollars is a blessing. Let me tell you. And it was from the IRS. And immediately we both said, eyes fake. Like they've never given us money. They usually ask for it, right? And so we're sitting there thinking about what if it's not a fake? So we check with our accountant. No, there's nothing coming. We've already received, you know, and, and given the IRS everything we're supposed to. He said, I don't know what's going on. Take it to the bank. So we go to the bank. Like they'll be able to tell you. Sheepishly, I walk in about 30 minutes before close. I walk up to a teller acting like I've done something wrong because I feel like, I, what if they, can you get arrested for this? Like, I'm not trying to scam them, I promise. Like, this just came in the mail. So I explained to the teller everything that's going on. He says, well, sir, there's all these security markers on a check that's issued, that every government issued check. Let's walk through them and see if this is legit or not. She begins to point out all the security markers and says, actually, this is 100% legit. It's real. And I was like, Wow, that's incredible. But you know what's fascinating about that bank teller is for her to be able to tell me all of the right metrics and measurements that this is the real deal. She wasn't pulling up and begin to talk to me and nuancing all of the new scam tactics that scammers are trying to do to get people to steal their identity or take money from them or write a fraudulent check. She just knew this is what the real one looks like. So for you and I, the step in the process is, isn't, how do I study culture? How do I begin to look within me to figure out all of my disordered desires? How do I learn the devil's voice? Like there's so many news media outlets. There's so many fake news on social media. There's all this stuff that's floating around in our culture. How do I know the fakes? And I got to learn and study all them. That's not the point. See, the point is, is like Jesus says in John 10, 10, that he's come to give life and life to the full. And a few verses earlier, he says, my sheep know my voice. For the life of a Jesus follower, the point for us is we must learn his voice. And when we learn his voice, when anything sounds any differently, we'll learn to spot the fake and how to address the fake. We'll learn how to spot a lie from a disordered desire in our own heart and be like, that's not from God. That's my own distorted desire. If it's coming from culture, we'll learn like, that's not the path to life that a follower of Jesus would take. Like, this is a path leading to destruction and death. And I know where this road goes. I must learn to submit and trust him. If it's something bigger at play going on, we'll learn it's like, that's from the, pit of hell itself. I've got to trust my good shepherd. You see, the life of a Jesus follower isn't to walk away from this sermon or even looking at Jesus' life spent in the quiet and think, I've got to sell it all, move to the woods, and live off the land. Because it's scary out there. The devil's hiding behind a rock. 
No, what we have to understand and realize is that Jesus' life in the quiet informed his engagement in the world. Because after Matthew 4, 11, when he is ministered to by the angels, the very next verse, he starts his ministry. That our life in the quiet forms us and transforms us as a follower of Jesus so that we can go and engage the world in a Christ-like manner. You see, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is the better Adam. You and I are not. We cannot defeat any of these enemies on our own. We need Christ. So in this relationship, in this process of learning to live in intimacy with him, I'll ask you what God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? For some of us, it's learning to follow Jesus for the very first time and beginning a relationship with him. Where are you? For others of you, you've been following Jesus for some time, but you feel like a failure in terms of actually pursuing intimacy with him. But you've tried and tried and tried and you don't know how to do it right. You don't know what to do next. Try again. God is walking towards you saying, where are you? In all the battles that we face in this life, Christ is our victor in all of them. He's defeated the devil. How do the saints conquer the enemy, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser, the liar, the thief from the beginning? Revelation 12, 10, it says, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, they were able to stand. Follower of Jesus, Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the life giver. Follow him, not just in a one-time prayer, but with your life. For all of us in ways that we've failed and more times than we can count, come back to him again because he is calling out to you in the quiet, in a restful state, walking towards us. Where are you? Did you pray with me? Jesus, would you help us learn to run to you even when we're filled with shame and regret? Would you help us realize that there's more at play in this world than what our eyes can even see, but in the midst of it all, help us learn to trust you. Help us root our identity so firmly in you that we would pursue a life in the quiet, that we would learn to trust you, not with just a one and done trust, but a daily trust of learning to submit to your will. Would you help us? Would you teach us? Jesus, you are the better Adam. You are the victor. In all things, may we seek to honor you. If someone is in this room, God, would you help them have courage and boldness to pray, to reach out, to stand up? God, would you get the honor and credit for every life change that happens? In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna stand and sing. There's gonna be prayer team members at the back. If you need prayer requests or anything, they're there or the altar is always open. Would you stand and sing?